Hi everyone, Ethan here. I wanted to let you know that Matt and I recorded this episode a week after the Capitol insurrection. We felt that in light of the impeachment trial, it would be appropriate to drop it now. Enjoy. podcast where two friends catch up and talk about whatever nerdy stuff comes to mind, usually over hookah. Enjoy. Impeachment number two. Yeah, well, that's that, uh, huh? that's exciting. <laughs> it's exciting. He's breaking. He's breaking records. He's he's winning like he's never won before. Oh yeah, he said That's he'd be good. tired of winning. I'm I'm tired of that. I'm <laughs> sick of, of winning or, or whatever whatever it was that we've experienced over these last four years. That's uh, uh, whew, man. I uh, I don't know. The worst the worst case scenario is like these guys that keep talking about either we get our president or we die. Yeah, it's well, the idea, then you might die. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's the worst thing about it. And, and that sucks because they're Americans, too, even though they're misguided uh, Americans. But I, I don't want to see anybody die. But uh, it's hard to feel bad for like the 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 woman that was the Air Force captain mm. or whatever she was, the one that was shot in the Pentagon or in the uh, Capitol building. I feel bad that she was shot. I feel bad that she was killed. I feel bad that she was possessed, yeah. if you will, enough to put her into that state of mind where she went and did something that she knows could result in her own death. Yeah. And I feel bad for that, but I don't feel bad for her. Does that make sense? Yeah, I know what you're like, saying. You did that. <laughs> you did that knowing the consequences. Um, I, I feel bad for the situation, but what you did, uh, you kind of earned it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah. And I feel yeah. bad for the people that got trampled. <laughs> that sure. sucks. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, there, there's, there's, there can't be a complete lack of accountability. Mm -hmm. um, we can't, we can't claim everyone who's a, uh, we can't claim everyone's a victim whenever they've done things that, that uh, put them into those precarious situations to begin with. It's just too easy. And there's yeah. no accountability. So Yeah, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. I guess we're going to talk about powers and demons and possession today. So this, this is a good well, way. I throw, I, that's why I thought I'd throw in the, uh, yeah, the yeah. impeachment because we're trying to, you know, the power of Christ compels thee, get him out. <laughs> that would be great. I uh, I like how you're framing that. Like, like I think it, I think how you're framing it is uh, I'm going to say theologically pretty dense, which is a good yeah. thing because so you talk about victims, right? Like part, part of what makes my own working theology of like demons and powers and principalities and possessions, part of what makes that kind of kind of tick have a, a something interesting to say about what's happening is that it, it highlights ways in which um, human beings have been victimized. And so um, without, without absolving human beings, it's not really what, what I would get at when I would talk about like a power or principality possessing somebody, but, but it does talk about, it does help us answer questions like, man, what are you thinking? Or man, mm -hmm. why are you doing that? Like, like what is, what is happening, you know? And, and it also helps us maybe answer questions about sin well, too. One, one of the things, I don't know about you, Matt, what, one of the things that's always bothered me when I was growing up, you know, and, and was learning about Jesus and before I became a Christian or studied theology was like the, sometimes the way people would talk about like sin or evil or, or stuff like that always seemed a little con occasionally would seem odd and contrived right so you have to you have to first uh, a lot of protestant people and maybe you heard about this in sunday school before you got kicked out but a lot <laughs> of a lot of protestant people might 
might say, yeah, human beings were, were prone to sin. There's, there's, there's something within us that makes us want to do these bad things. Like what? Well, of course, murder is a sin. But, you know, lying to your parents is just as bad of a sin. And I sit there and I go, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, like not every one of us is prone to murder. You know, not every <laughs> one of us is is prone to uh, rape, you know, or, or or these things that are quite self-evidently really horrific. Sure, I might I might say that I might agree that like, yeah, lying or temptation or stuff like that is not good, maybe. But. But I always struggled with with kind of putting all of that on like a like like the the urge to lie is connected to the same place that the urge to murder is connected to, which I always found a little odd. A robust kind of theology of possession and powers and demons and all that can help us kind of answer some of those questions a little differently, like like. Some people really think killing is the way to go. I don't know if I can imagine that. Well, but but if I was possessed, if I was if I was sort of systematically convinced that and and affected by um, powers that tell me things like I'm going to try to make it about the capital now that tell me things like there is a secret pedophile ring of of. <laughs> <laughs> of uh of Satan politicians cannibals right yeah yeah that are that are drinking the blood of children and and you need to and they need to be killed you know they're they're if i'm told over and over again and made to feel over and over again resentment that's sort of a, a an interesting thing that i've been working with 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 some in in one of my classes from this past semester is is sort of the rise of christian resentment of of christians in this country feeling resentment over secularity or feeling resentment over the the you know the the change in american culture that does not make it church centric if if there was a sense in which that resentment builds and is and is weaponized and made on purpose to to mold a human being you know i can understand how a human being would be pushed or made to believe that storming the capital will be good. That's a good thing that, that we should do those things. Um, I'm always, I was always one of the things that I, I'm always struck by whenever I read about another person getting arrested by the FBI is how surprised they are. Like, like, right. Well, they, they aren't aware that what they did was wrong, right. you know? So and I and I think like picking up the whole QAnon thread, where you mm -hmm. know there's a secret cabal of of Satan worshiping pedophiles running the government. That's kind of picking the ball up at half court, because mm -hmm. this indoctrination starts before that. It starts with with a sense of of purity, with America right. being land of the free and the home of the brave, and we have veterans and police officers and all these people that have you know spilled blood for this thing called America, mm -hmm. right? And that that's what they believe is being threatened. I bet you if you were to ask any one of those Capitol people, the people that, that marched on the Capitol, like, what are you afraid of? It's not pedophile Satan worshipers. It's losing their idea of whatever their idea of America has morphed mm. into it's it's their family it's their friends it's their jobs it's their that's what they're that's what they're afraid of mm -hmm. now the 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 demonic thing if you will in my opinion and I'm not a theologian and I don't have the training that you have but what seems most demonic about it for me is people or forces or entities that will exploit those good feelings those mm -hmm. those wholesome feelings, those feelings of that we would all agree are positive, you know, a sense of family, a sense of love, uh, honor, of decency. Those are good. I, I think we can, but but they can be morphed and changed and directed in a way that serves the nefarious means of another. That's what I would consider the demonic 
aspect mm. of it because these people aren't being uh, they're 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 doing things on their own but they're being pushed if you will they're being directed by another entity in this mm-hmm. case trumpism or patriotism or whatever you want to call it maybe give give the listeners a little bit background on your powers and principalities overview sure i think that'll help clarify kind of where we're coming from yeah so this is something that's really important to me both as a practicing christian and as some and as in my theology and in, in the stuff i'm studying listeners um in the new testament uh of the bible there is this kind of interesting thread of of thought that you see a lot in the letters of saint paul and then you also see kind of picked up in unique ways in in the gospels and some other things where um the new testament imagines that the world is not really is not really split up into two kinds of moral actors so here's what i mean by that like we in contemporary in our contemporary life tend to imagine especially if you're a theist if you believe in god tend to imagine that there are two kinds of beings that that intentionally act in the world there are humans and there is god humans and god do stuff in the world how that happens at least for god who's to say but but for people who believe in God nowadays, it's kind of how we imagine it. That That's just not the way Paul or many of the authors of the New Testament imagine it. What they would imagine is, and Paul talks about this in the book of Romans, the book of Corinthians, Colossians, Ephesians, kind of all throughout it. And we see this, in, like I said, in other cases in the Gospels and the book of Revelation and some other places. Uh, Paul imagines that there are spiritual forces and spiritual entities um, that he lay, that he has a few names for, but but one name that comes out a lot are powers and principalities, and these powers and principalities are real. They're they're real things. They are not biological. Paul doesn't imagine that they're sort of these invisible uh, um, uh, gargoyles or invisible things like that. They're real entities that Saint Paul and the New Testament imagines that um, have the ability, the authority, the prerogative to shape and interact the world with the world. And because of the state of the world, because the world is sort of steeped in sin and is fallen, um, as the Christians would say, um, these entities are also fallen. And these entities can and and do uh, pretty bad things. And so in St. Paul in particular, this is a, a, a very much a Pauline kind of way of putting it. Uh, and like I said, it is picked up in different cases in the other parts of the New Testament. But when Paul sort of imagines what, what the big problem is, like what is it that Jesus saves us from, that's sort of what he imagines. Paul imagines that Jesus saves us, Jesus liberates us. He, he sets us free to be people who are under his guidance and his lordship. Because currently, the problem is that all of creation is under the lordship and the guidance of these powers that cause them, that cause us and uh, all of creation to uh, uh, deal death to each other and and um, just generally not live in the image of god in the plan of god exactly anything that take it takes away from god's um uh majesty or god's god's plan right god's design god's right ordering um i put it like this the first time i told you about this i used this analogy and, and i think that paul would agree. Certainly the gospels would use this analogy because the gospels, when they frame it, this is how they frame it. You've got uh, Roman centurions all throughout 
the story of, of Jesus Christ, Roman, Roman soldiers and Roman centurions coming to enforce the will of Rome and, you know, yada, yada, yada. The power is Rome. The power behind that centurion, the, 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 the human being who is a centurion is um, caught up in, in service to, in the thrall of one of the powers. And that power is uh, Rome. In all of its forms, we, and very we talk, real, <laughs> and it's very real, right? Exactly. Like, like, uh, and now, and 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 when you, when we think about it, it's not that complicated. Like, Rome is not, and because we have this in the United States too, Rome is not just a marking on the map. Rome is an ideology. Rome is a symbol. Rome is a government. Rome is an emperor. You know, Rome is all of these kind of matrix of often intangible things that make somebody Roman. Right. And I think that's the point that, the, that that's really what I want uh, the listeners to understand is what we're talking about when we're talking about a power or a principality. I think that's a perfect illustration of it. And it can be applied to, you know, America or a Steelers fan. <laughs> right. <laughs> or whatever whatever case may be but I, I think that's a really uh articulate way of, of defining what we're talking about so go mm. ahead and continue sure so kind of the quick and dirty version of the stuff that i'm really interested in as a theologian is i'm really interested in talking about um two things a talking about the way in which the powers um sort of manifest themselves publicly and, and I use the word public as sort of a catch-all for everything. Like um, pub, the public includes the political, the economic, the social, you know, the, the, even, even the, the uh, entertainment world. Like anything that has that public face, I would include in the public and in the public square and the public sphere. And so I'm really interested in that. I'm interested in thinking about how powers and principalities are public entities that manifest themselves publicly and therefore, ha and here's then the second part of what I'm interested in, and therefore, uh, the way in which they affect the public, right? And so it's, do powers and principalities affect individuals? Of course they do. That's, that's obvious in many, many ways. Um, but in the other way, there is something kind of doubly sinister about what um, public powers and principalities do. So like um, black and queer and feminist and, and Latin American liberation theologians are really good at identifying the way in which the powers victimize oppressed people. And that, that should really be obvious to us who are, to any of us who are thinking in these terms, right? James Cone, the first black liberation theologian would say that, that, um, Remember, the lynching tree is a symbol of the power of white supremacy. White supremacy is a power. James Cohn would name it as that. And black right. people have been victimized by the power of white supremacy. Yes, true. What James Cohn was not interested in, but what I am more interested in, not that I'm not interested in what James Cohn is interested in. What I'm more interested in is, is the equally sinister way that a power like white supremacy, doesn't have to be white supremacy, I'm just using it as an example, but a power like white supremacy creates white supremacists and victimizes people in a different way by not just victimizing them sort of by, by oppressing them and imposing an order upon them, like with black folks, but, but by um, being people creators, um, um, uh, uh, causing a public of white supremacists, um, crafting a subjectivity of white supremacy, um, something that I've started to become more interested in because of the, not just because of the mob on the Capitol, but because of the alt-right in general, is I've become a lot more interested in 
uh, powers as um, styles. And so there's a couple of theologians who think about powers and principalities uh, as, as uh, having a kind of an artistic style and aesthetics and the way in which that, that style uh, possesses human beings. And so I think about um, Viking man and the way in which, he's just a, an example, and the way in which there is a, a look, a, a, uh, a, a look that, yes, has within it a number of, uh, you know, ideological content and stuff like that, but there's something powerful about the look. I think about like bumper stickers on the back of cars that are like totally out there or or the the Trump flags and the outfits and, and everything and the way in which the the look carries forward a possession. Um, and that's why I use the language of possession, why you've picked on up on that, too. Another way of thinking about it is where Cohn would say that the power of white supremacy oppresses and victimizes black folks but it possesses white folks. Right. I understand where you're coming from. Let me, let me break it. Let me strip you down here a little bit. I want to take a sure. couple of pieces here. I got a couple of questions for you. Sure. Firstly, would you say that powers are inherently evil? No, I wouldn't say that. Um, I would say that they're fallen, you know, that there's, that they have, uh, a corruption, a distortion, stuff like that. Okay. What I'm getting at is my, my understanding of, of what a power would be, would be anything that has uh, control over another thing. Okay. Okay. This can be white supremacy. We can agree that that's evil. Right. But could that also be love? Hmm. Could that also be family? Could that also be, um, nationality, things mm. that aren't by themselves obviously evil. Are you saying each of those has an evil component to them? No, um, I would. This is this is where the language of fallenness helps become a little more nuanced than evil. I think that it. I think I might be okay with naming love a power. I might be. There's some metaphysical reasons why I might push back on that, but but for the purposes of the conversation, I might be okay with that for right now. Um, to to name love fallen as opposed to having an evil side would be to say that um, there is something diminished, imperfect, and distorted about love. Right. Which I think is true. You know, I think I think that's true of of human beings. It does not make love bad. And it doesn't mean that there cannot be and hasn't been um, um, expressions of and relationships of love that uh, do not bring life and goodness and wholeness and all of that. But it does mean that, that there are, um, it does mean that Romeo and Juliet can exist. Right. Right. Where we're like, right. It's a vulnerability in a way. Yeah. Yeah. But so what I'm getting at is uh, what's your opinion on the concept of corruption? Because I think what we're really dealing with is these powers aren't in and of themselves good or evil, right? Sure. Some of these powers aren't necessarily good or evil. I would argue that white nationalism is simply a corruption of, of, of a pride, which sure. Or, or, you know, however you want to term it, but uh the, the corruption is the part that I'm interested in mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. love can make you do some pretty evil things. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah, or, yeah. or, or, or family or, or religion or whatever mm. you want to say that you wouldn't otherwise characterize as being corrupt or being inherently evil or in, inherently outside of the plan of God. Sure. Right. So mm -hmm. I really want to explore the aspect of, corruption of these powers mm. misguiding right. people what 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 has the nefarious capability to take something that would otherwise be good and make it so obnoxiously and obviously evil mm. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. that's kind of the distinction i'm trying to 
to draw. It's almost like there's the, a, a demon would be a corrupting force, for example. Right. Does that? Right. Yes, I think that that's true. I think that that's, that's a, uh, a decent way of putting it. Sure. I, I use powers, principalities, and demons sort of interchangeably in a lot of ways. I, I actually mm -hmm. prefer to talk about the demonic. Okay, well then explain to me what, what the demonic is because my, me, my preconception is the demonic is a corruption of a power. Sure, I, I don't hate that. And I, and I, would, I, would, be on, I would be up for that. Um, the, one of the best sort of uh, shorthand definitions of the demonic from a theologian I've ever heard was from a theologian by the name of Arthur McGill who actually wrote an essay, it, it comes from an essay that I really like by him, um, on uh, the demonic in the public square, which I find really interesting. And, and he, his kind of really quick and dirty definition of the demonic is, I'm going to try to get it right, is any transhuman powerfulness that we experience as negating life. So, okay. so um, for, for McGill, the demonic, when we encounter the demonic, we encounter uh, a, a powerfulness, a vitality, a force that, that does not obviously come from a human being. And we then experience that force as being a negation uh, bringing to ruin a ceasing, a stopping of, of kind of human life, you know, and, and it's sort of its vibrancy. And that definition allows McGill to talk about the demonic. But just so we're clear, we're not talking about an entity. We're not talking about. For McGill, no. For McGill, right. no. He's not talking about a power, you know, like, like an entity. He's, he's talking about more, uh, uh, it's more experiential than that. He's talking more like, what is the experience of the demonic? When we experience the demonic, what do we experience? We experience this thing. We experience a transhuman powerfulness that we experience as negating human life. I don't hate that definition. I might do some more things to it maybe in another time. But like, I think that definition is concise enough that it, and, and is interesting enough that it allows certain avenues to sort of be opened up for experiencing the demonic. And McGill does that. McGill names the DMV <laughs> as a possible, as a possible well, place to experience the he, demonic. He can't be wrong about that. <laughs> he can't be wrong. I know you laugh at it. You're like, yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe, you know. Um, but then he also names like the war room at the Pentagon, mm -hmm. you know, as a possible place to encounter the demonic. Part of McGill's background is he, he was sort of chronically ill and and he named the the hospital ward as a place where we can encounter the demonic. Um, not to say that doctors and nurses and medicine is all demonic. He's just he's just speaking from his experience, and I like that um, for a few reasons. But the main reason is because of its sort of broadness. How I would use it is I would use it in a similar way that McGill does. Um, and, and, I, and I would want to talk more about whose experience might be more um, trustworthy when we name the demonic. So if you were to ask a Trumper, where's the demonic? The demonic surrounds Nancy Pelosi. She's possessed. <laughs> you know, and, and I, I'm like, okay. But if you were to ask, say, um, the wife of George Floyd, where is the demonic? She might have, um, from a Christian standpoint, a more trustworthy answer. Because Christians are taught within in the gospel that the face of Jesus is most clear in the face of, you know, the poor, oppressed, the, right. the oppressed, all of that stuff. And so uh, when a Christian tries to identify who, whose experience of the demonic is more, is more trustworthy, that, that's, that's, a, that's a move that, that Christians really need to consider making and to remind ourselves that 
Sure, I'm not saying that all of us are untrustworthy. What I'm saying is, is that if, if there's such a stark difference, we should, we should err on the side of, the, of, of oppressed people who are like, no, this is, the demonic is here. You know, The demonic is, is here and not there. Or how about how about this? If we if we recognize um, or maybe redefine and the the goal of a, the demonic is to sustain itself. Sure. Right. So yeah. what I mean by that is um, the whole the whole reason that people are drawn away from the path of God is because there's another entity or another uh, influence on them that desperately wants to fill that that void it mm -hmm. wants to be the the focus of attention mm -hmm. be it nationalism be it uh whatever you know um and i think that that's an important component to what could be considered demonic now if you, you take the examples that you gave with um the trumper claiming that the demonic was best manifest in Nancy Pelosi and you take the wife of Joyce George Floyd as having a different I would say that those are both coming from the same um, core okay and what I mean what I mean by that is um, the Trumper feels that Nancy Pelosi is the oppressor sure sure, sure. and the uh, the wife of George Floyd, feels that the police are the oppressor now regardless of which one you believe or agree with regardless i mean obviously one's right and one's wrong <laughs> sure, sure. right but but regardless of which one you agree with they're both threatened by the same thing losing their autonomy losing their uh independence losing their liberty mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um and I think the demonic is what takes that sense, let's call it liberty, uh, as the power and, and twists it in a way that it makes liberty the most important thing rather than God's plan. Sure. And in that way, they can both be seen as somewhat evil. And I'm yeah, not I calling George saying. Floyd's wife evil. I'm not saying that. Don't go there. Sure, sure, <laughs> what I'm sure. saying is there's the same power behind it. There's mm -hmm. the same, there's the same um, distraction from God behind it yeah, that yeah. motivates both people, even though they see two completely different um, reasons or what they claim are different reasons for their oppression, mm -hmm. two different figureheads that hold that oppression um the 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 demon is being oppressed the feeling of being oppressed right. and whether you're a white nationalist feeling oppressed that you're losing your ability to own slaves mm -hmm. or you're a black person who's feeling oppressed by the white person who wants to own slaves it's still the same being oppressed sure sure you follow what i'm saying i, I do follow what you're saying Th what what's helpful now you know, in, in our conversation is, is then to kind of um, uh, bring it together with this theology of powers. Right. So right. I think, I think you're right. I think that the understanding that at least from this kind of working definition of the demonic that we're going with, this is what we call a phenomenal definition. So like, what is the demonic? Well, McGill, the theologian is not interested in giving you metaphysics. Like he's like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what the demonic is, you know, like I just know what it feels like. I know what the demonic we, we can at least offer a definition of what the demonic does, even if we can't give you a definition of what the demonic is, you know, kind of sub substantively. And so I think what you're saying takes that seriously. And, and I think you're right. Like both, both people are experiencing the demonic, right? When you, when you pair that with with really, which is something I'd like to do in my in my work, when you pair that with really robust theologies of powers, you begin to discover that um, that can still be true, and the different kinds of people, depending on what they experience as demonic, is a sign of perhaps the way the power has possessed them 
or victimized them or, or sort of done things to them. So, or what it rubs up against in terms of other powers. Absolutely, because the powers are not in, um, not in accord often. Actually, right. that's something that we see, that's something that we saw perfectly clearly at the Capitol. Correct. Like, like, like that's, that, is, that, is, that is an obvious ex- experience we see at the Capitol. The powers were in disarray. That's what uh, Nick and I said to each other when we saw it all. Like, my, the powers are in disarray, right? We have the power of Trumpism actively working against the power that is the United States government, actively working against the power of republicanism. Like, like it all hits together. And, right. and, and, it, and, it, and it results in this, you know, we're, we're tempted to believe when we first hear some of this, ah, the enemies, you know, they're, they're all, they're all in, in cahoots. Often they're not. That's kind of what makes this all wacky, you know? They can't be because it's, it's each one of those different powers competing for supremacy that causes Absolutely. the conflict. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. The other power that's in the midst of this is the church, you know? You have evangelicals who are who are kind of in 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 the play, and, and it all comes together, um, and it often results in in really really chaotic wackiness. I'm glad you brought that up. That's that's a really good point. So so one of the people I really I'm studying for my PhD is a uh, monk, is a fourth century monk named Evagrius. And Evagrius is um, a, a spiritual writer. He, he's a theologian as well, but he, he tends to write more about like the Christian life. Like this is, what, this is what Christians should be striving to do. And Evagrius is very well trained as a theologian. He, he learned theology from my boy, Gregory of Nyssa. He's who's <laughs> super smart, Gregory of Nyssa, super genius. Um, we'll do a pod on that. Just to oh, yeah, man. He's Gregory. This is awesome. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, Evagrius. So Evagrius learns theology, you know, in the big city and and decides that he is he needs a more robust Christian life. And so he moves to um, the deserts of Egypt to be with the Christian monks of the desert of Egypt. There's a strong Christian desert tradition from, starting from the second century on. And so he joins them in the fourth century and Evagrius um, writes documents and writes uh, stuff on demons. You know, he's, he's one of our sort of primary Christian thinkers on the demonic. And I find his work fascinating. The first time I read it, I was, I was really, I was really blown away by it um, because it, because it's so not angels and demons, you know, it's so not. Well, that's, (laughs) <laughs> it's 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 that's because he was before all the uh the populism and the yeah. uh the uh, theatrics of the middle ages <laughs> you're, you're exactly right you're exactly right and so evagrius writes this book called the practicus in which he talks about how the monk or any christian can identify when they're under assault by demons by the demonic and then their strategies to like combat that and and kind of push through that in in the christian life and um when we get to the middle ages evagrius's teachings morph into the seven deadly sins actually and so that's where we get the seven deadly sins mm-hmm. from he does not talk like that but uh, evagrius names um what he calls uh, the passions right and so he names these these heightened emotional states as sort of being a, a signs of demonic possession in this way. So he doesn't have in mind like the exorcist, you know, he's not, he's not envisioning right. that. Instead, he's like, we have been possessed by demons when we experience these, these uh, passions in our lives, rage, lust, gluttony, uh, there's a really fascinating one called Asidia, which, which is a um, a kind of listless boredom. He names. Oh, that's people. mine. That that's mine. that's a that's a fascinating <laughs> section. He really he's he's really thinking that through, and I find that fascinating. To name boredom as a passion is fascinating. Um, and and he talks about how he offers a a sort of a, a theology of what happens when the demon 
comes upon the human being and inflicts this stuff. And, and there's this really compelling passage where he talks about gluttony. And he's like, you know, when, when the demon of gluttony afflicts the monk, he afflicts the monk with, with deceptive images of scarcity. Mm. He called, and this is what he says. He, he calls to the monk's mind lies over uh, not fear having of, enough. Fear of loss, right. Fear, fear of, of loss, right, right. Whatever and, it is you have. Exactly. And, and by doing this, the monk is, is overcome with the passion of gluttony and fills his storehouse with things he doesn't need, takes from the poor, takes from the needy, and hoards it for himself. Now, that's just a that's just a typical commercial cycle on any episode of the Tucker Carlson show. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like that's yeah. just that's just like you know he assaults the and, and like you can picture, fear is a like, powerful motivator, my friend. Fear, oh, uh, fear is probably the most powerful motivator. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But just just the way it's sort of you know explained, like the he afflicts the monk with images of scarcity right uh and and he's got something like that for each of the passions right things that you don't expect you know lust is it, lust is not about for for him it's not about just showing a bunch of porn like the the monk is the monk is afflicted with the passion of lust when when the monk is shown when the monk is deceived to be lonely right you know and, and all this stuff and it's really fascinating and, and Evagrius makes a point. He says, remember, this is a deception. The hungry cannot be afflicted with the demon of gluttony because they are not being deceived, at least not in this way. They, they have actual scarcity. <laughs> right, right. It is, only, it is only the fool that can be afflicted with, with, scare, with, with gluttony, um, which is like dead on. And, uh, and, and I find that... Um, to be a a much more compelling vision of demonic possession, right? Um, than than other you know kind of theatrical things. Then pea soup and floating above your bed. Pea soup right. and floating <laughs> above your bed. And and B, I think it's um, even though Evagrius didn't have this in mind, it's obvious that there's a public, political, and economic dimension with all of this. Right. You know what is what is the strategy of capitalism but not to inflict us with desires and to inflame these passions right this isn't my marxist appeal right now that i'm just being <laughs> i'm just being honest right like like what is what is trumpism but not the the attempt to fill people with rage or fill people with you know whatever well you, you talk about scarcity the the motto of maga is make america great again right implying that it was great and we've lost it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a pretty clear line from one to the other if you ask me i agree and so for my work i i want to make i want to draw those two kinds of things together like i want to identify what Evagrius is saying about the demons of the passions with the powers. Right. And I want to talk about the ways in which um, the powers, that's sort of the MO of the powers, right? Like what is the MO of the powers? Well, the MO of the powers is on one hand to survive. You, you named it perfectly correctly. Every theologian of powers and principalities would say, Matt, you're exactly right. That is the point. The point is the powers are mortal mm -hmm. and they don't want to be just like all mortals. <laughs> you know? right. Right? And, and so they will, they will do their best to stay alive even long after it, it's like trickle down economics, right? Trickle down <laughs> economics has been killed dead, but man, that thing still lives. And I don't know how, <laughs> you know, tax cuts on the wealthy. It's just, doesn't work, but yet it's still alive. Like it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, uh, that that's the point. They want to live. They want to be God. They want to be in charge. They want to live forever and be immortal. And the way they do that is by what I would argue is by inflicting the passions upon people 
um, and using those who's, who they've inflicted with passions to keep them alive. Right. Uh, and so, and so, really, this is a theology essentially for white people. <laughs> you know, because well, we seem I, to be not. We're not not I, the only the, people. That's where it's evident in our society now, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I mean, what you're talking about is really a more universal thing than just that. I mean, sure. it, that's an example of how uh, it's an illustration of, of, of the powers that you're talking about and the way that they manifest themselves and the way that they impact people. But I really think it's deeper than that. And it's 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 there's more to it than that. It, mm-hmm. In our time right now, in, in our current experience, sure, that's uh, that's that's the issue. But it, it underlies what underlies that issue has been around forever sure. in different manifestations. So mm-hmm. I'm sorry. No, go I agree. Ahead. no I, I'm, I agree with you. I do. I, I think that um, to speak of this now is, is to be very honest about the way in which white people have been possessed. Right. And, and many of us have, and, and, and lots of ways um, and the way in which, you know, black and brown folks, it's not that they can't be or aren't, but are, are uh, differently victimized by the powers often. Yeah. All of this is to, is then to ask the question, like, what does Jesus have to do with any of this? And, and, and ultimately the answer in my opinion is well, well, Jesus is about liberation from these uh, entities, first of all. And so on one hand, the life with Jesus, which, which by the way, Christianity is not the same as the life with Jesus. Like Christianity is a power that can be hijacked and has been hijacked as well. But, but a life with and in Jesus is a life that is one that is sort of essentially free from passions and powers, free to be able to uh, live life in the kingdom of God, to right. live now, life. In, me, yeah. Go for it. Let me pause you for a second. That's the mission, if you will, of Jesus. What is the mechanism? What is the the way in which Jesus does that? Because I would argue that the main way that Jesus was able to liberate people from these powers and is still able to liberate through these powers is through education he brought things to light Mm. explained things to people people called him teacher people called him rabbi sure you know and i think that the best way to combat some of these powers is with education people need to know what they're talking about and i really believe that jesus knew what he was talking about Mm. whenever it comes to some of these soul-searching um eternal questions right right? so what in your opinion was his mechanism what was his tactic for liberation sure so this is i think thing everything is messy it's this is probably not where things get messy um this is where i think the mechanism it becomes really organic and so i really like to lean on um a way of talking about salvation that it is highlighted in some really early church documents, which is called recapitulation. Mm-hmm. And, and the kind of theory, the, the kind of mechanism behind that is Jesus liberates people by being a person in the fullest possible way. And so part of what's going on in Christian thought, and in my thought in particular as well, is um, in a fallen world, in, in a life under the powers, human beings live and are human beings in a really diminished way. That, that human life is not flourishing. It, it's not, it's, we're not being the beings that, are, that are, uh, we are made and called to be. We are definitely made in the image of God. But we might not be. We might not currently be reflecting God's likeness. We we might be made in God's image, but we're reflecting it really badly. That image. Well, we're distracted. Uh, we're distracted, right? We're distracted. We're corrupt. We're there. There are things about us that we've mistaken, and 
misfelt, perhaps, you know, our, our ability to, our senses might be off. And in the sort of recapitulation way of thinking about the mechanism that Jesus, what Jesus does, is that Jesus lives a human life that is full, that is open and, uh, and, and constituted by God in the fullest possible way. And, and each sort of part of Jesus's life as he lives it is, is meant to mirror and sort of retrace the, the kind of life of humanity, you know, kind of globally, uh, universally, um, and specifically uh, the life of humanity that we see in the, the, in the myth of the Garden of Eden. Some thinkers will go down that road. Some early Christian thinkers draw between Adam and Jesus. Paul does that. Paul, Paul calls Christ the new Adam, you know, right. on purpose for that reason. And, and some early Christian thinkers kind of pull on that and, and do some really kind of interesting artistic moves. I, uh, I find that interesting and artistic, but what I find more compelling is um, this idea that in the lived reality of Jesus Christ is, is a human life that is, that is one that is essentially free. And by living life, not only in accordance with that life, but by uh, being empowered by God's spirit to know Jesus and, and dwell with Jesus, by being empowered by God's spirit to live that life, that is the mechanism. And, and that mechanism is scary because part of, like we've said in, in other podcasts, even though they haven't dropped yet, part of what <laughs> is scary, part of what is scary about this notion of living like Jesus, especially when we pair it to Jesus might be the most human being ever, you know, <laughs> Jesus might right. be, it's not that because sometimes we want to say, well, Jesus was superhuman. Well, Christian theologians would say, no, Jesus was not superhuman. Jesus was human. And that the makes all the human. difference. The most <laughs> right. human. The right. rest of us are not quite human, you know, in, in, in the fullest sense. Because there's the sense in, in, in this way of talking that, that a human life fully and truly lived is a life that confronts powers bridges gaps between people we are called we are told by the powers are not our people you know that mm -hmm. is a samaritan we are not we are israelites and jesus goes none of that matters you fucking idiots you know like, <laughs> right. like, like, or, right. or and saint paul gets it too in his life in christ there is neither jew nor greek slave nor free male nor female like it's all right all of that is torn down because you discover that all of those things are things created by the powers. Right. You know, like, like they're, they're not, they're not um, inherent in the natural order. We discover that if we live life like that, then yeah, like we, we brush up against our death. We, we, we discover a lot of really terrifying and scary things, but yet the Christian church when it's proclaiming it correctly, says, yeah, that's true, but that's also where the real human life is. Right. That's and that's why and that's why is. I draw the distinction that I that to uh to Jesus being an educator. Mm -hmm. He leads by example. Sure. You know, he, he can show he can he can show us how we're supposed to behave. You know, he can mm -hmm. show us what that path looks like. And that's why I I, I, I liken him to a teacher more than you know, a superhuman entity. Right. Right. Um, I think a lot of the things we run into nowadays today is because people just aren't, they don't know. They don't know things. We've got people screaming right now about Trump's Twitter following being, or Twitter thing being canceled because, well, that's a violation of the second amendment. No, my friend, you don't understand what, or the second, the first amendment, you don't understand the first amendment. You don't know what the first amendment is. <laughs> right. Right. And, and, you know, I think a guy like Jesus would, would say, all right, well, I understand how this fury can infect people, but here's, here's what it really means. <laughs> here's, mm -hmm. 
here's the here's the explanation. Here's the here's the way, the truth, and the light. Right. right. Here's here, here's the path. Right. Um, the First Amendment doesn't have anything to do with Twitter. <laughs> Twitter, sure. Twitter is a private company. The First Amendment pertains to the government. It doesn't mm-hmm. pertain to Twitter. You know, so the fact that they're even starting off on that foot automatically shows you that they're already already possessed, if you will, by another entity that's pulling on that string. And it's using using the First Amendment to draw them farther away from the light. Mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. you with me? I and and I think for me anyway, that's the way that the mechanism in which Jesus taught. Sure. By example. Mm-hmm. So I think you're right. It's not that I think you're wrong. I, I do think you're right. I think that um, as we dig deeper into that mechanism, we discover that that mechanism of teaching uh, is a mechanism that, that goes into other parts of what it means to be human other than uh, maybe like uh, the intellect or like the, uh, like knowledge, right? There's a sense in which when, when the New Testament calls Jesus the way, the truth, and the light, and the life. It doesn't say Jesus's words are the way, the truth, and the life. They might be insofar as they're connected to Jesus. They, they name Jesus Christ as the way, you know, like what is the way? Well, the way is this person in all of the things this person thinks and says and does and feels. And, and there is um, a, a sense in which that goes uh, deeper than just having um, knowledge or seeing or having deceptions that we see and understand be revealed to us. That, that goes deep into the hidden deceptions. This might sound a little, um, oh, I don't know, foo-foo, like, fu- like foofy, you know, like, like, like uh, hippie-ish. But I don't really think it is. Like, like there are hidden deceptions in sort of the 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 depths of human beings that are that are not just going to be fixed by just understanding things differently um and and going oh i thought it was this but it's actually this there are things about many human beings that are so internalized that are so built into the way we feel not just the way we think and jesus by being named as Jesus, the way gets into that too. There, mm-hmm. There's a mechanism that that is part of the mechanism. And, and I think that this is why the, the church and I often insist on more than just. Sure. You know, sure. You I get know, that. Like, like I mean, there's the, more the, than that. The reason I asked the question about the mechanism is because boy, I, we could use some of those tools now. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we could do, yeah. we could use some of those we could use some of those tricks, whatever the tricks of the trade he that he had. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we sure could we sure could use some of those now. So that's why I'm trying to get at like I understand what he wanted, but I I I, I want to understand how he did it because <laughs> we 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 could re- we could really use that right now. <laughs> yes we could. Yes we could. I I often get uh frustrated with with good old JC for uh not uh for not making some of that a little clearer. Um but I think and, and but and I mean this Matt I, I actually think that there are there are some really um, strong and clear examples in the history of Christian thinking and, and Christian life that that uh, give us uh, really good examples and really good clues on what to do. I just think that a lot of that is both very hard and and often found in places that are not um, you know like us, right? Like uh, I am I am constantly being corrected in a very good way. By, by my friend from seminary, Annalise, whom you have not met. Annalise is great. Uh, she's a pastor in, in actually in Virginia, and she's, she's fantastic. She's black. And Annalise always, whenever we talk about the church in America, Annalise is very quick to say, you mean the white church? Because right. the black church in this country has been doing everything you said it should be doing for a really long time. <laughs> 
like the the black church in this country has uh, spoken out politically, confronted the powers, <laughs> worked to be holy like Jesus. You know, are they perfect? Hell no. But the black church has has been doing what you want the white church to do. And I go, yeah, you're probably right. You know, <laughs> but but I think I think that that's a I think that's a good example. Right. Like, OK, there are Christian communities in the history of, of Christianity that do stuff and that are engaged in those things. They become less visible when Christians in power, which I would name myself as one, like Christians that have a certain amount of power and privilege try to apply it in their context, discover that there's a whole host of powers that I have to shed before I can kind of do this, do this stuff well. Um, so, and so I'm less likely to, to follow through with some of those things. But, um, but on the other hand, I, I think it's, you know, Matt, I think it's, I think it also is a testimony to just how enmeshed um, sin and evil and powers and demons and all of that stuff really is, you know, there, there's, there's a, there are Christians that have what I would call a really optimistic view about human beings. And I'm often in that, in that world. Like I, I am often optimistic in which we talk about, yeah, human beings are good. We're inherently good. We just have some flaws or we just have some short sightedness or, 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 you know, we're just imperfect, but we're good. You know, there's that. There are lots of people that I love to read that are in that camp. And then there is this tricky camp that's, that has done so many bad, so much bad shit, like the full out crazy Baptist camp that says human beings are bastard coated bastards with bastard filling. We are nothing but walking bags of shit and blood. There is, there is sin everywhere. And we can't do anything good, save for the grace of God. That might be true. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like people storm the effing capital. Yeah, but yeah, I understand. I understand what you're. I understand what you're saying. But yeah, so I mean, everything is totally enmeshed. Everything is interwoven. Everything is. It's it's just not that simple. You know, it yeah. can't it can't be distilled into. Well, I wouldn't say it can't, but it's, it's going to take a lot of work to distill it into its in, into its individual component parts. Mm-hmm. So that's why I ask myself as a, as a member of law enforcement, right, what powers do I need to empower to make sure that the bad powers don't overcome the good powers? <laughs> right, right. So right. We, we have to use the tools that we have, right? So we mm-hmm. have to, you know, I don't know. It's, well, and I, Matt, I think that I, that's one of the reasons why I really love you and appreciate your perspective, because as somebody who is in law enforcement, who is who is still doing what you do, like in, in terms of trying to resist Trumpism and trying to to take seriously things that should be taken seriously, you know, um, which which I'm not saying no law enforcement people do. That's not what I'm saying. But like, that's not that's not what we see a ton you know, if we're honest, um, I, I think I, I love that and respect it about you, but I think that this is one of the things, if I'm, if I may say it this way, this is one of the things that, that cause you, uh, anxiety when we dive deeply into the gospels, because, yes, <laughs> because Jesus, Jesus was killed by cops, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, like, like Jesus, Jesus was not pro cop, you know, like he, he's, <laughs> And, and so, and so when we turn to Jesus and go, what do we do, Jesus? Um, Jesus often says, sell everything you have and follow me mm-hmm. or, right. or uh, put away your sword. Those who live by the sword, die by the sword. Yeah, but they're about to kill you. Man, I don't really know what to fucking tell you, Peter. Like, put the sword away. <laughs> like, ah! <laughs> you know, like, and those are things that I'm not good at. Like, those are things that I. Nobody's good at that. No, nobody. Good I, that. That's unfair to ask of people, Ethan. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, think about it. If if somebody's coming for Adrea, yeah, you're gonna want a cop. <laughs> oh yeah, I'll, I'll do whatever <laughs> I need to do. You know, I agree. Yeah. With you. I agree with you. It, it, I mean, then that's where I feel like some of that messaging is kind of Pollyannish in a way. 
Hmm. Uh, Jesus says, throw down your nets and follow me. Well, if everybody did that, it wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> but not everybody's going to do that. So what do you do hmm. about the people that don't do that? Because they're the ones that are going to wind up tacking you to a tree. You're right. You're right. <laughs> so, and 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 herein, herein lies, I think, the one of the reasons why I just can't shake this this first century Palestinian Jew out of my mind, no matter how hard I try sometimes. Like on one hand, there is ample room in the Christian tradition for the exact thing that you and I are talking about of doing our best to live in this messy world while taking the teachings of Jesus seriously. Mm -hmm. Right. And there are some good and deeply faithful Christians who are doing this hard work and talking like we are. Um, and that's good. And, and yet I cannot shake the feeling that Jesus is right. You know, I can't shake the feeling that, even when I am scandalized, even when I go, but we just can't do that. You know, I just, I just can't do that. Jesus. I can't shake the feeling that, that Jesus, when he says, but don't you want abundant life? Like, don't you want life and life abundant? Don't you want to be human beings? Like for the first time, maybe um, I can't, I can't shake. Don't you want to see the face of God? which is the only thing I've ever wanted to do. Like it's the only right. thing I've ever wanted, you know, is to see the face of God. Um, like I can't help but feel that, that nevertheless, there it is. Like it, it, it might be that simple. Um, but here we are, you know, <laughs> here we are still, still trying to figure it out, I guess. Um. I don't know. So <laughs> we'll end all of these. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. No. <laughs> Happy that you're my friend and that we're doing <laughs> this. So that's good. Let me wrap it up. Friends, thanks for listening to another episode of Hookah Chats. Uh, we are Matt and Ethan, and we will see you next time. <laughs>